it's uh, probably especially hard for you to hear me online <laughs> when I don't have my microphone on. Um, good morning. I, I want to read to you what I find to be perhaps the saddest verse in the New Testament. Um, there's a lot of sad things that go on, but most of them have this clearly redemptive edge. So even the verses about um, leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, well, there's incredible pain and sadness associated with that. They're just the greatest moments in all of human history. This one here doesn't, at least to our knowledge, have that kind of redemptive tone, and it's just kind of always captured my uh, attention. Paul is writing to Timothy. He says, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Here's Paul in his moment of great need, greatest need, actually, and uh, one of his closest friends, one of his strongest supporters, a guy who's been on his team for years, abandons him. Um, and, and, and we don't know a lot about Demas other than he's mentioned a couple of times and the people he's mentioned with gives us a sense of what kind of a man he had been. Uh, he's part of Paul's team. At a, one point, the team consists of Paul and then uh, a guy named Aristarchus and a guy named Epaphras, who are two servants of the Lord and, and servants of Paul, who will do anything, I- including risk their lives. They both wind up serving time with Paul. They're in prison with Paul for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the ministry, and for the sake of supporting their friend. It's, it's hard to think of somebody who is a higher level of, of friend and, and support than that. Uh, so those are two members of the team. Another two members on the team are Luke and Mark. Those names are a little bit more familiar because they both wrote Gospels. And um, they followed and served and worked with Mark, both Peter and Paul and Barnabas at one point. And it, it's not easy to get onto this team. It's not just something that happens to anyone. If you remember, Barnabas actually got sent to the minor leagues for a little while uh, to, to develop a little bit more, or at least that's what Paul's intention was. And Barnabas took him and said, let's go do ministry. And uh, later he winds up back on Paul's team. Uh, that's, a, that's a challenging place to be. That's a, that's a pretty significant role. That's somebody who's shown themselves to be fairly um, reliable and faithful. And then we have Demas. He's, he's the fifth member of that team, at least at one point. And what causes somebody like that, somebody who risks their life for the gospel, who follows and serves and supports Paul through thick and thin to um, quit the team, to fail, to abandon, how does that happen? And I left out part of the verse actually in the middle of what I read you It says this, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas had a problem in that his heart was captured by the wrong love. That's what happened. And that's what I want to talk about this morning, because I think the Demas syndrome is something that we are all susceptible to. It's something that happens in all of our lives continually. It's easy to... um, have our hearts captured by the wrong love, and if we're going to rise above living life just like anyone else and actually live in light of true reality, in light of our relationship with God, in light of the kingdom of God, and, and, and thrive in the, in the right sense of that word in every setting, we've got to be able to overcome the Demas syndrome, and that's a centerpiece of the verses I want to point us to in 1 John chapter 2. So if you want to turn over there, 1 John chapter 2, 
And these are familiar verses that we're going to be anchoring in this morning. And in verse 15 is where we're going to start. Here's what it says. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. A couple of things to make sure we're all on the same page here, to say, uh, don't love the world. He's not talking about the earth. He's talking about the system that drives this world, the values and the way things work. Don't fall in love with that, because that's not of the Father, and it is passing away, and it will actually drive out love for the Father, Or if you follow God faithfully, that will drive out love for the world. There's this inverse direct connection that we find there in verse 15 where it says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, uh, as I fall in love with the world, it drives out love of God. On the other hand, because it's connected in a one-one kind of way, if I pursue love of God, if that grows in me, it drives out love of the world and the things that are passing, and it centers me in the things that are eternal, which is really what I want. And these values that are called out are called the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And uh, we'll look at those again in just a second, but fundamentally, those are, those are the desires that drive our world, satisfying our appetites and, and the things that are, are beautiful and, and captivating in their image, and uh, our sense of significance in what we have and who we are, what we accomplish. Uh, those are the things that drive the world system, and he's saying, be very, very careful. Demas fell in love with the world. He had his heart captured by the wrong love, and he wound up abandoning Paul in his moment of need. He he wound up abandoning the gospel and the ministry that God had called him to because he allowed the wrong love to take deep root in his heart. And that is a reality that we all face. Um, When I fail other people, it's usually because the wrong love has captured my heart somehow, right? Why do, why do we get divorced? Why do we quit when something gets really hard? Why do I have a hard time following through on commitment sometimes? Often it's because the wrong love has taken root in my heart, something tied in with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Why do we uh, manipulate one another Why do we uh, exaggerate our stories and uh, try to ingratiate ourselves with others? Or why do we try to make ourselves feel better and advance ourselves in competition with somebody through gossip or through um, slander or through some sort of harsh words or Facebook or TikTok or Instagram or whatever social media rants, it's probably because somewhere the wrong love has captured my heart and I'm going after the wrong things. Um, We fixate on things themselves, right? Whether it's uh, something that has three dimensions to it or something through space and time. It can be an experience. It can be a relationship. It can be something. I can fixate on a a cruise. I can fixate on a car. I can fixate on a new kitchen. I can fixate on all kinds of things. Why is there so much debt? Probably because we've allowed the wrong 
love to capture our heart. That's what happened to Demas. That's the Demas syndrome. And if I'm going to rise above life as it is commonly lived in order to thrive through every circumstance, not thrive as in life is easy, but thrive as in life is right and it's going where it's supposed to and there's a vibrancy and a health to it. If I'm going to do that, I have to learn to follow God's pattern. And he says, don't love the world, do God's will. Don't love the world, do God's will. It boils down to that. And that's really, really hard. And before we jump into trying to unpack how to do that, I want to point out one thing in that section of the verse we've looked at already, where it says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That inverse relationship says it's really about my relationship with God and the love of God that happens in me because of relationship. At its very core, this is not simply a call to some sort of moralistic hard work that never, ever works, right? Sometimes we approach the Scripture, and we either take lightly the call to holiness, and we take lightly the call to living a life of obedience uh, and kind of dismiss that because we feel it's unrealistic, or we, we just strap on our boots and we just give it our best and we try to go hard, but we do it in our own strength. And neither of those work, neither of those is fundamentally biblical. And here in this passage, um, it, in the center, it talks about there's this connection between my holiness, if you will, and my love for God. And, and so at a very core, it's, it's about building relationship and then as I lean into that relationship, then there's, there's some hard work with it. And it is hard. It's hard not to love the world. It's hard not to love the world for a number of reasons. And if you find yourself struggling, there's, there's reason for that. One is, is we're in a culture that's constantly marinating us in, in values that pull us away from God. Constantly marinating us in that. And that culture itself is not neutral. There is a malevolent, intelligent design that goes with it. First John 5 talks about the world lying within Satan's power. And again, it's talking about the world system. And he doesn't have control like God does, but he's got immense influence and cleverness, and he's manipulating things the best that he can to keep us away from following God. And he uses the world system to do that over and over and over again because he understands the things that we treasure will be the things that shape our hearts. And so if he can keep us treasuring the wrong things, then our hearts get warped. There's a verse in Matthew chapter 6 that draws that out for us. It's easy to read backwards, and we need to read it carefully. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus is talking. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Not where your heart is, there's where your treasure is going to be. Your treasure, the things that you, that you treasure, the things that you pursue, the things that you value, that's going to shape your heart. So be very careful what you value. Be very careful not to love the world system, not to fall prey to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Guard against that. It's hard because that's the whole system around us. That's, that's the air that we breathe, the water that we swim in, and, and the experience that we have. I am a new creation in Christ, right? There's something radically different. The old has passed and the new has come. And yet, there's a challenge here because uh, I'm a new creation that hasn't forgotten old cravings, right? There's a pattern of life before that change came. 
And even though at my very core there is this dramatic shift, even in my nature, those old cravings are still around, and they're still being tapped into constantly. My mind hasn't been fully renewed yet. That's a process that's unfolding, and my only partly renewed mind is still subject to strongholds that rise up and draw me away. It's hard. It's hard because I marinate in values that lead me away from God, and it's doubly hard because those values themselves are rooted in things that God designed, right? It's hard to live in the world and not be of the world because I can't withdraw from the world. I can't pull out of all of these things because the appetites of my flesh can be falsely met, but God designed them. God made a peach taste like a peach, and he gave me the ability to taste it for a reason. It's supposed to taste good. I'm supposed to desire it, right? God gave me a sense of aesthetic so that beauty and, and even image in the proper sense captures my attention, and it draws my heart. He designed that. I'm supposed to look at a sunset and be dazzled. The problem is I wind up being dazzled by the wrong things. The dazzlement itself was designed by God, the ability to be dazzled, and even the things that are dazzling, he intended. But something happened to rip those out of their rightful context, and that's why it's hard, because I'm supposed to desire these things, but somehow they run wild. Even the boastful pride of life, which is pride in, in what we have and who we are, and, and it's basically about significance, Right Now, the, the boastful pride part is obviously wrong, but it's, it's rooted in stuff designed by God. For me to say, I want to make a difference, I want to matter, I want to change the world, isn't pride. It's the image of God. It's how I was designed. And so when Satan manipulates the system to constantly drive at those things and yet shifts the price tag, it's a very subtle thing and it's very, very hard. We know it's hard because if... Jesus found it hard, and Adam and Eve failed, right? There's twice we have these temptation encounters that we're aware of between a sinful human being and Satan. Both times he throws these things at them. One time Jesus passes, the other time Adam and Eve failed, but it's these things. There's something that resonates about them, not because of sin, but because of how God made us. When Eve looks at the fruit, it says it, it's good to eat. It, 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 it's going to satisfy her hunger. And it's pleasing to look at. And it will make her wise like God. In other words, that's where the lust of the flesh gets started. That's where the lust of the eyes gets started. That's where the boastful pride of life gets started. It's, it's rooted in things that are actually good, but then it goes beyond. And it turns from being something that draws me towards God to being something that pulls me away from God. It turns me from being somebody who's building life around God's agenda and it makes it radically selfish. I become about satisfying my desires when I want, how I want, because I want. And I become about what I like, what I find attractive, and I let those things go to seed and they go all over the place and they, they stop leading me to God and start leading me in the wrong direction. And my sense for significance is, is ripped out of relationship with God. I'm in the image of God. I am meant to change the world. I outlast the world. I'm worth a son to God. There's no greater significance. And yet, 
I make it all about me instead of all about me in relationship with God, all about me serving God's purpose, all about me as God's creation, honoring and loving him. I just make it about me. And then it becomes the boastful pride of life. Eve and Adam, who's with her, fall right into that. Satan comes with exactly the same pattern when he comes to Jesus, and it's probably most clear in the sequencing you find in Luke chapter 4. Starts by saying, turn the stones into bread. You're hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. Nothing wrong with eating bread. Nothing inherently wrong because you're the Son of God in, in, in turning stones into bread. But it's not the time. It's not the place. God had an agenda. Jesus wasn't going to abandon that. He wasn't going to make it about his physical desires. And so he resists the temptation. Then Satan takes him to a high mountain and says, look at all these beautiful kingdoms and all of their glittery glory. It's yours if you want. You don't have to do the hard road. I'll just give it to you. Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm here to do the will of God. I'm not going to worship you. And then he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, throw yourself down. You are special. You're the son of God, right? He's not going to let you die. He can't do that. In fact, when the angels catch you, look at the crowd down there. Not only will it be obvious to you that you really are special, everyone else will know it too. Appealing to the significance that we get from God and trying to take it to that place of boastful pride of life. Jesus doesn't take the bait, Adam and Eve do, and everyone since then has had the same battle because the battle itself isn't, isn't clean. It's not like, oh, this is right and this is wrong and I just move away and eat stuff that I hate and live a miserable life and I know that I'm honoring God. Not at all. Not at all. God intends me to enjoy many of the same things, but how that enjoyment works its way out and what's happening in my heart is the critical question and a verse that's helped me over the years is in in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where it says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. It's, it's about aim and it's about entanglement. So don't, don't become entangled. Those, those pragmatic details, which is literally what it's talking about, those matter, but, but there's, a, there's a mission for your life. There's something bigger, and, and don't let those be the defining reality. Always keep in mind that there's an aim that you have and, and seek to live in light of that aim. When, when John calls us to not love the world or the things that are in the world, don't love the world, do God's will. He's tapping into that, saying, these things that matter don't matter as much as we want to make them matter, and don't let them get in the way. And doing God's will, that's part of it. And God's will has many aspects, in the, and First John alludes to some of them. There's a passage that's kind of similar to the one Gary preached a couple of weeks ago that says, because when Jesus comes, we're to be like him, prepare yourself. And it talks about broad holiness. But we're holy as, as saints of God who are called to live not just ethically, um, righteous lives, but we're fundamentally in relationship, and, and First John leans heavily into that. It's about um, if, if you're anchored in God's love, you'll love other people. It'll, it'll express itself. Doing God's will is, is fundamentally going to involve how you love other people, and that's why it's hard. That's why it's hard, because people are sometimes the easiest thing in the world to love and sometimes the hardest thing in the world, and that's because they're independent, and you never know what you're going to get, Right? You just never know. And sometimes it's easy to love somebody, and sometimes it's really hard. And if I'm going to be faithful, I just have to love. I have to serve. I have to pour myself out, whether it's easy or hard. 
Uh, the other day, we were interacting with somebody. Um, we've started to have a few people outdoor, social distanced kind of interactions um, when, when that seems appropriate. And we had this um, family over. They have a two-year-old child. And, and Dave, my wife was drinking coffee out of her Winnie the Pooh mug. And uh, the child looked up from where he was, and uh, we, we weren't paying any attention. He, he just started talking really fast, and he couldn't get the words out fast enough. Like two-year-olds, sometimes their minds are working faster than their mouths, and, and so it was hard. And he, he kept saying, I, I, there's, there's, there, there, there's, there's poo, there's, there's poo, there's poo. You know, after a two-year-old says three times, there's poo, they've got your attention. What are you talking about? There's poo. We're, we're very... Uh, tuned in. And finally, he got it out. There's, there's, there's poo on your cup. And initially, it's like, what? And then, oh, Winnie the Pooh. Oh, yes, very cute moment, right? But it was totally unpredictable. In, in two-year-olds, that's cute. In 52-year-olds, it's often just painful. What are the, what's going to happen? What are they saying? What are they actually doing? Do I understand what's going to come next? And, and part of fundamental to actually Obeying God is, is loving others. It's at the very core of this. He's calling us to do something hard. Don't love the world. Do God's will. But it's absolutely central. If I'm going to rise above a, 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 the life that is just rooted in this world and live the one that Jesus calls me to, live the one the Holy Spirit is empowering me to, live the one that will have the redemptive impact and bring the ultimate joy I have to learn to overcome the Demas syndrome. I cannot let the wrong love capture my heart. I can't fall in love with the world. I have to do God's will. So let me give some practical tools that maybe will help in that. Uh, again, this isn't about a self-willed, hard-working moralism. It's got to be rooted in my relationship with God, right? There's this reciprocal relationship that says loving the world is driving out Love for God. Love for God is driving out love of the world. It is a fundamentally relational concept. It's fundamentally empowered by God. With that in mind, then it is a command and it does require work from me. And here's a, maybe a tool that will help me to evaluate and then a couple of strategies that maybe will help me to grow. Evaluation is important because, um, because I'm supposed to live in the world but not of it which means I can't bail out. I still uh, am attracted by beautiful things. I still have physical desires, and I still want to be significant because God made me for that. That's good. I just need to guard that it doesn't get off on the wrong footing, that it doesn't go the wrong direction, that it doesn't somehow turn to idolatry. The book of First John ends by calling them to guard themselves from idols, and I think we probably all understand this if we just back up and really think about it. The biggest idol in our lives is us. And the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life go off the rails so easily because they become so much about us. What do I want right now to bring me pleasure? That's where the whole pornography industry comes from. That's why we eat too much of the wrong things all the time. That's why we um, are lazy. That's why we give ourselves just to pleasure and we hate being bored. I mean, all of those things, they go to seed and, and they're all based in, in, in values and in, in, in good things that God's given us, but then they turn to just self-gratification. And it's not even that you shouldn't enjoy it. If you're eating a good meal, enjoy it. Or if you're, 
if you're doing something that is pleasurable, enjoy it, but enjoy it in such a way that it, it leads you to God, not away from it. In fact, there's the test. There's the test. If it's love of God drives out love of the world, love of the world drives out love of God, here's the question I should be asking. At any significant moment, any significant choice, any significant challenge, will what I am doing right now, is what I am doing right now building me in love for God? Or is it diminishing my love for God? There's a simple, not easy, it may still be hard to discern, but that's the question, that's the fundamental issue. Is this growing my love for God or not? There's the test. And as long as I can say it's growing my love for God, then it's probably just fine. And if I, if I have to say I don't think so, then it's not. Then I am probably letting myself begin at least to be captured by the wrong love. And I'm falling into the Demas syndrome. A um, couple of strategies, a couple of tools to say, what do I do? Um, I would use these two words, lensing and displacing. Lensing and displacing. Because the things that are part of the world system that are enticing to draw me away are also things that God has actually designed and intends for good. It's not the thing usually. It's what's going on in, around, and through that, what's going on in my heart. So a simple um, tool is, is looking at that thing as a lens through which to engage God, not a mirror through which I just simply experience how I feel, what I think, how I respond. My significance, if it becomes the source of my pride and I spend time fixating on how much of a difference I make and how great I am. Or flip side, because it's exactly the same issue, I have this self-loathing and this constant sense of failure because I can't point to those things. I'm, I'm using it as a mirror and I'm just looking at me. I'm supposed to look through that and if I have this platform God's given me on, and I, I'm able to do something that makes a difference and there's this significant moment, praise God, God enabled that and it can be used to put the spotlight on him and, and I don't have to have this false sense of modesty, oh, I'm nothing. I mean, God gave it to me but the point is it's a lens that, that turns my eyes and allows me to focus on him ultimately. Same thing with my desires. Same thing with the beauty around me. Right? When, I, when I see a sunset, I can just see a sunset and walk away unmoved, or I can just see a sunset and be moved and not really share it with God, or I can see a sunset and I can allow myself, I can allow my soul to ache over that beauty, and I can share that ache as an act of worship with God. That's on me. So I, I, I look at whether it's a lens or a mirror. And then there's the idea of displacing, right? Again, Love of God drives out love of the world and vice versa. So it's about displacement. One of the most significant strategies for my growth and holiness is simply to grow in passion for Jesus. I know a guy who was about to abandon the faith and just remembering his love for Jesus was enough to put his feet back on the right path. He was a graduate student working on his Ph.D., he was way into philosophy and he became enamored with the philosophy of Buddhism and he called his mom one day because he kept in touch with her and he said, Mom, I've decided to become a Buddhist. And instead of freaking out, she said, that's interesting. Uh, let me ask you a question. Do you love Buddha? And he said, that's, no. Why would I do that? 
She said, okay, well, do you love Jesus? And just asking that question got him to back up and think about who Jesus is, what Jesus had done, and he said, yes, I love Jesus. And that moment of just focusing in on that love and leaning into that love displaced the apostasy he was flirting with, right? Sometimes just lean into love. Instead of just enjoying the thing, spend significant time thanking God for it. Remember the markers. Remember God's goodness. Remember Jesus, how amazing he is. Focus on that. I can lean into love. I can also choose celebration. Sometimes we're a little too reserved. God does something. It's okay to celebrate it. I was at a fireworks show years ago with a guy who was quite a few years older than me, and at the time, I just thought how it was difficult for me to process because he was going nuts. He was, ah, well, that's amazing. He was jumping up and down and hooting and hollering like he was four. And at first, I found myself put off a little bit by it. And then as I thought about it and as I just lived with it for a moment, I actually found myself caught up in it and enjoying and celebrating because he gave himself to celebration. Something beautiful was happening, and he celebrated it. God is always doing something beautiful, even in the midst of the hardest things. I was telling the the, uh, service out on the lawn this earlier, they're not doing this in Phoenix, Arizona. (laughs) They would die. Right? Pray for our brothers and sisters in Phoenix. They can't be on the lawn for a gathered service. Everyone has to be live streamed. And by God's grace, we're live streamed too. And for some of us, that is the best choice. But for some, it's better to gather on the lawn and we're able to do that. That's a grace of God. He's got different grace for people in Phoenix. And by the way, if this goes on until November, then the people in Minneapolis won't be meeting on the lawn, and we still can. All we have to do is make sure water doesn't get on our head, should it ever happen to fall from the sky, and we're good. God is doing something great. God works in us. He opens opportunities. In the hardest and darkest places, there are things God does that I can celebrate, and then there's those moments where he breaks through, and amazing things happen right in front of me, and I need to give myself to celebration. That grows me in my love. I also need to give myself just in service and sacrifice because what I love is really shown by what I'll pay for it. And uh, sometimes in the paying for it, my love increases. We're supposed to not love the world. We're supposed to do God's will and we should be growing in that over a lifetime so that increasingly that's what happens. Thinking about a lot of people I've seen that in, and one was my dad. Um, my dad just kept focusing on Jesus his whole life, at least all the life I knew him. And um, at one point, he thought he was dying, and, and he, uh, he was having a heart attack, so maybe he was. Uh, but God spared his life, and in the middle of that heart attack, uh, we were all gone from the house. We were all grown, so it was just my dad and my mom, and he slipped out of bed, and he went into the other room so that he could die alone. I don't know why he didn't call 911. It's like, Dad, that's dumb. Call 911. But that's what he did, and in that moment, he wrote a letter, and it's, it's this precious letter where he addresses each one of the kids and um, my wife, because I was, Davette was part of, the, part of our family at that point, and my mom, and talking about different things, and talked about love each other and love God most right? Years, years later, my dad was struggling. He was in and out of the hospital, mostly in. Health was horrible. He was alone. My mom had passed. It was painful. And, and yet he kept saying the same thing. He kept leaning into the same thing. 
love God most. God's got a plan. I'm trusting him. You know, when he passed from this world, it wasn't just a relief from suffering. It was a welcome into the ultimate reality he'd been continually building his life around. Because though he really did enjoy life in the world, for the most part, he was human like everyone else and he struggled, but for the most part, I think he avoided falling into the trap of letting the wrong love capture his heart. He didn't love the world or the things in the world. All that's in the world, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away. Only the one who does the will of God endures forever. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to be captured by the wrong love, that we would not love the world, but that we would do your will and that you would grow us. That is a hard path because there's so many nuances. Guard our hearts, Lord. Help us to experience life through a lens and not a mirror. Lord, help us to keep attentive to whether our love for you is growing or diminishing. Lord, help us. Help us to just lean in. Lean into who you are, what you've done, and may that displace everything else. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.